Hey everyone, welcome to yet another episode of the Inner Realm Podcast. And today I'll be reading out guiding axiom number four that I wrote for my newsletter, The Unhappy Man. And in case you haven't been following these axioms that I've been enumerating in the past couple of episodes, essentially uh, there were seven axioms I laid down for my newsletter, The Unhappy Man, as I did mention before. Um, and I realized, wow, by me writing and thinking clearly, these axioms that I'm laying down really are a, fr a framework for all of my creative work. And that obviously inclu includes this podcast and whatever interviews, scripts, uh, I don't know, disquisitions, whatever I do in, on this podcast, I'm hoping to do it via these axioms, via, via, via this framework. And I certainly don't want it to be uh, something that confines me or something that sort of, uh, let's say, that, that doesn't allow me to, uh, that, that shackles me. I'd rather hope that it's a good place to start from and then open up into somewhere because I mean, I need some kind of stable footing and that's why I, I thought it's, it's wise and prudent, especially given my nature to get lost in obscure thoughts and sometimes nonsense. Uh, it's, it's healthy to have some axioms, especially out of respect for a reader or a listener in this case. Um, so axiom number four, five, and six, I don't want to just do what I have been doing in the previous episodes or the previous axioms that I've been reading out, where I've mostly been just reading it out of the essay I've written. Uh, rather, I want to maybe pause in the middle, have a bit of commentary, um, expand as, you know, the good thing about a podcast is that it allows me to do that. And I think the reason for that is because I realized, you know, Laying down these axioms, because I wasn't writing a lot at that time, it took me a bit of time. It took me about three to four months. Uh, not because they are deep and profound or dense in any, any way. Pretty, in my opinion, they're pretty uh, superficial, not too deep thinking. Uh, however, uh, oh, well, the reason it took a long time is because I just had other commitments. I couldn't write that much. Um, however, the point I was trying to make was that in those few months itself, I've been reflecting a lot on <laughs> kind of a, a revelation, let's say, that I had in the past two years or so. Uh, it wasn't a sudden thing. It wasn't one event. It, it, it was a gradual change I had in my thinking, both existentially, theologically, um, and as, as a result of that, perhaps philosophically. And these three axioms, so four, five, six, that I'm going to cover for today and then five and six and future episodes, they're really important for me. They they are important in the sense that they, they're very existentially pertinent to the current place I'm in life. And trying to deeply read thinkers such as Slavoj Žižek, Potelik, um, and Nietzsche, of course, and recently even uh, the theologian Peter Rollins, th these thinkers have had an unbelievable impact on how I viewed everything, especially Christianity, given that I'm a Christian. And therefore, because in many ways, my identity comes from that relationship I have with Christianity and Christ. When my Christian beliefs are subverted, I myself am subverted. So these, these axioms are important for me, four, five, and six. And I, I hope to carry on this podcast in the spirit of these axioms as I've said many times before. Anyway, that's enough of a introduction or, or prelude. I shall get started. Today is guiding axiom number four, 
It's called on writing, or in this case on podcasting, without lies, machinations, and bullshit. And of course, since I didn't mention in that unnecessarily long introduction, the link to the original uh, article or essay is down there in the description, along with the other guiding axioms too. It's infinitely easier to know of a lie than what is true. Existentially, a lie is not a mere untruth, but an utterance of non-being. I got this term from Paul Tillich, by the way. And to be aware of non-being is more than the conceptual, theoretical understanding of a philosophical concept. Once it's felt spiritually, the anxiety it imbues can leave one perturbed and unhinged. Such is why Paul Tillich states, anxiety is the existential awareness of non-being. The Courage to Be, page 35. The anxiety Tillich writes of is not the medicalized kind a psychiatrist would prescribe a drug to or a new age self-help guru would try to solve with a mindfulness course. It's inescapably a part of our being. In fact, Tillich says that this anxiety is ontological. As he continues on The Courage to Be, page 36, Perhaps I should not keep reading out the page numbers because that's kind of annoying, isn't it? I'll just say the name of the book. Uh, and obviously in the original article that I'll link below, you'll see all the sources and pages and whatnot. So getting back to this, existential in this sentence means that it is not the abstract knowledge of non-being which produces anxiety, but the awareness that non-being is a part of one's own being. Anxiety is finitude experienced as one's own finitude. This is the natural anxiety of man as man. And in some way of all living beings, it is the anxiety of non-being, the awareness of one's finitude as finitude. So in this play of words that Tillich is doing here, what I understood it to be as that, what we talk of anxiety, angst, or, or the idea of finitude, it is, it is own in nature. It is the starting point. It isn't, in that sense, perhaps he gets it from psychoanalysis where, you know, I, I think the Freudian notion is, an, and I'm, I'm in no way an expert in psychoanalysis, but my very superficial reading is that birth, being born into this world itself is tra traumatic, it's trauma. We are born with trauma and, and our imbuement into being is a traumatic event, which is why, you know, it goes on to the rest of psychoanalysis, repression, whatnot, hysteria. Um, therefore... I see anxiety in the same way. I see it as not to some as I see it as not something to be cured. Despite due to our own peril, in my opinion, we've overtly medicalized it. But that's a whole other topic. And in fact, uh, it's a podcast that I'm going to do uh, soon. I'm currently writing the script because it's a sensitive topic for many people. I want to be punct punctilious and I, I would say more respectful. That's how I do it. Getting back to the essay. Despite being encompassing non-being and the impossibility of jettisoning our existential anxiety, lying exacerbates the looming threat of non-being and make one's considerative ontic anxiety pathological. You're aware of death's actuality, that at one arbitrary point in life, everything culminates in a nothingness. Despite you not knowing what this nothing truly entails, you have intimations of its imminence. And yet you can cope with death. But if you lie and deceive in your finite existence, 
Not only does death verge upon you insufferably, but your life becomes so agonizingly hellish that you'd wish you were dead already. This means we identify a lie or truth best not by the cognizance of correspondence or objective facts, the way a theoretician or a scientist would do with a given problem, but primarily by being attentive to one's inner thoughts, emotions, and psychic states when uttering or writing something. In that vein, metaphysically speaking, if the universe is made, of, made up of facts, the trueness or falseness of a fact necessitates a human being or a design to use Heideggerian terminology to come to being. Case in point, Martin Luther, the father of the Protestant Reformation, was a little-known priest in 1517. This was until he famously hammered his 95 Theses onto the doors of All Saints Church in the border town of Werenburg, Saxony, modern-day Germany, subsequently stirring up a storm across the whole of Europe and eventually every corner of the world. His list began the ongoing dissension between the hegemony of the Roman Catholic Church and its opponents, colloquially known as the Protestants, and secularly precipitated leftism. This is true, I believe that Martin Luther was pretty much the first leftist. I'll start that sentence from the top. And secularly precipitated leftism, anti-statism, and modernity as a whole. One could argue that many momentous historical revolutions and social movements, from the French Revolution to the Civil Rights Movement, could be pointed to this ostensibly simple act by Luther, which he intended only to start an academic debate. At the time, the absolute theocratic authority of the church led, led to Luther's excommunication by, by Pope Leo X, and he was called to the Diet of Worms, a formal deliberative assembly, and demanded to recant his heretical statements or would risk being burnt at the stake. In his intransigency, notwithstanding the risk of dying a brutal death, he famously responded, My conscience is captive to the word of God. Thus I cannot and will not recant. Because acting against one's conscience is neither safe nor sound. Here I stand, I can do no other. God help me. Since we live in secular times and are detached from a pre-reformed society, we can't understand the significance of Luther's actions. No reading of history will help us realize the radical change he set forth in humanity. However, we all have our own distinctive moments of here I stand, I can do no other. Luther believed to have found metaphysical truths about being. Uh, pause. Perhaps I will not, perhaps if I rewrote this, I would probably have not put the word metaphysical in there because after reading Heidegger, I'm beginning to question the whole project of meta metaphysics itself. So I don't know if, if Luther really was talking about metaphysical tr truths in that sense. Uh, so I would just leave it as Luther believed to have found truths about being. Okay, back to the essay. But all he had to stand by was his conscience, not an objective theory of any kind. His only way to discern truth from untruth was solely himself. If he recounted his statements, he would be telling the greatest of lies by defying his conscience. This he couldn't live with, which is why he can do no other. You and I have very little in common with Luther except for this phenomenon of being, 
creatures with an inescapable, idiosyncratic conscience. Leaving aside abstruse metaphysics and ontology, in our daily lives, in certain immediate particularities, we find truths above truth, but ourselves and conceivably the larger structural whole of reality itself. So we ought to pay attention to our lives with the utmost rigor. A lie is more than asserting an unfactual statement, because notwithstanding um, machinations to obfuscate and masquerade lies as truth, even if we convince everyone to accept a lie as being true, when one lies, one knows. And to make matters worse, we are also self-deceiving. We must stop fooling ourselves into thinking that our emphatical will is the will to an unprejudiced truth. Far from it. Kierkegaard, in his oblique, characteristic manner, was the philosopher who expounded best on finite man's susceptibility to self-deception. For instance, he was highly skeptical of Aristotelian virtue ethics and moral philosophy. A Kierkegaardian would find viewing man as solely a rational creature of moral reasoning to be unduly naive about the human capacity for radical evil. Despite, at times, its spuriousness and unreliability, the findings of psychoanalysis tell us that we cannot acontextually and abstractly follow an objective morality. Even when we think we are doing so, it could be self-deception. Comprehending this datum doesn't necessarily require reading the labyrinth of existentialism and moral philosophy, although we all ought to. Rather, being attentive to ourselves will suffice. Recall the last time you unequivocally knew you were doing something wrong, not new in the sense of knowing some historical fact or political theory that it would regurgitate to sound smart, but you felt a pang of profound guilt and visceral disgust towards yourself for a certain act. Amidst the moment, you hated who you were and couldn't relieve your conscience of this psycho-spiritual distress. At such times, most of us would justify our subjective shortcomings that are supposed to be on par with our personal telos, we'd conjure up any reason to tell ourselves we are not at fault. Our intent was good, or there was no real harm done, etc. And who could blame us? Life is hard, and occasionally, perhaps always, out of pure pragmatism, similar to Cypher in the Matrix, we choose to live in convenient lies, as ignorance is bliss for most of us. In many ways, Nietzsche completed Kierkegaard's existentialism by hammering home the point that even our conscious decisions and social structures we're put in, for example, the revered scientific institutions, aren't oriented towards uppercase T truth. Nietzsche writes, Even scientific inquiry itself our science indeed. What does all scientific inquiry in general mean, considered as a symptom of life? What is the point of all that science, and even more serious, where did it come from? What about that? Is scientific scholarship perhaps only a fear and an excuse in the face of pessimism? A delicate self-defense against the truth? And speaking morally, sometimes like cowardice and falsehood, Speaking unmorally, a clever trick. Oh, Socrates, Socrates, was that perhaps your secret? Oh, you secretive ironist, was that perhaps your 
irony. <laughs> Gosh, I, I can never get over and, and not ever fall in love with Nietzsche's prose. It's just it's bizarre. I, I can't believe he writes like that. So what does it mean to be an authentic and truthful writer in this utter confusion of existence? It's someone who doesn't write bullshit. Unlike a liar who might at least have the pretense of being concerned for the truth, Harry G. Frankfurt expounds that bullshit is speech or writing by a bullshit artist without any regard for truth at all. Instead, he is predominantly aiming to be solely persuasive and change the listener or reader without convincing someone that something is true. It's even done unconsciously, at Fra as Frankfurt elucidates in his paper. Our natures are indeed elusively insubstantial, notoriously less stable and less inherent than the natures of other things. And insofar as this is the case, sincerity itself is bullshit. Ergo, we ought to never confuse our ostensible authenticity in speaking or writing as being truthful. Sincerity itself could be a tool used for deception. One can never truly know if one is being truthful. Much like love, truth is an article of faith. One falls into it and thereafter decides to pursue it. Pause. Just a point here. When I mean one falls into it, I certainly don't mean it's a complete arbitrary, chaotic, random event. You know, finding truth or falling in love. For both to happen, to find truth and even to fall in love, I believe we have to, as a subject, orient ourselves towards the fall, so to speak. And, and I'm going to write about this in the future. Once we fall, we have to decide to be fallen. Therefore, it's not a mere chaotic, irrational event completely out of our control. We, we not very much, not ultimately perhaps, but in many ways we do have control at least as to how we orient ourselves and as, as to how we are ready to, to, to find love or find truth. All right, back to the essay. Existentially speaking, which is the only way one ought to speak about such matters, this is why truth is an orientation, as I had said before. The intent of an individual and a state of being one chooses to embody rather than a destination, set of facts or propositions. In that sense, one could make an unfactual statement due to their ignorance, but still not be a liar or bullshitter, as he's still aiming at being a seeker of truth, notwithstanding his proclivity to be fallible due to the sheer fact of being human. Of course, an outside observer cannot empirically verify this. It's entirely left to one's conscience. So perhaps one should be petrified of lying and striving to be an arbiter of truth. Solzhenitsyn was right when he wrote, the simple step of a courageous individual is not to take part in the lie. Subjectivity is truth. And this leads to one of the most contentious statements of this essay. While I'll strive for objectivity, pause. Ah, it's, I had to pause there and think because I don't even know what I mean I'll strive for objectivity, what that means. Perhaps the more apt term is while I'll strive for a trans subjectivity. A common subjectivity, if that makes any sense at all, because I'm coming to the belief that we have no way of knowing what's objectively true. It, it, it's something that just doesn't comprehend, or it's not, it's not something that I can resonate with. 
objective truth in that sense. All right, back to the essay. I don't want to overcomplicate this. I just want to, at least in some sense, stick to the essay. <laughs> I'll start again on that. It's, it's, I kind of screwed up that sentence. So, subjectivity is truth. And this leads to one of the most contentious statements of this essay. While I strive for objectivity, I need to realize that for the type of being we are, that is human and not God, subjectivity is truth. In his trenchant critique of German idealism and ardent emphasis on existence to be with an inwardness over abstract theorizing, yet again it was Kierkegaard who expounds, and even introduced to the Western mind perhaps, the notion of truth that matters above all other truths is the subjective one. Sartre, of course, appropriated this project for a secular world with his atheistic existentialism of radical freedom. I'm more a Kierkegaardian than a Sartrean, as I'm a religious Nietzschean. That is to say, God does not exist objectively, but purely subjectively. And what matters is not the afterlife, but the present one. Therefore, I'll write through the lens of subjective truth and be primarily concerned with subjectivity. Kierkegaard writes in Concluding Unscientific Postscript, Christianity protests against every form of objectivity. It desires that the subject should be infinitely concerned about himself. It is with subjectivity that Christianity is concerned, and it is only in subjectively that its truth exists, if it exists at all. Objectively, Christianity has absolutely no existence. If the truth happens to be only in a single subject, it exists in, in him alone. And there is greater Christian joy in heaven over this one individual than over universal history or the system. I like that last bit because he's uh, sort of mocking Hegel there. For him, God is a subject and therefore requires a subject-to-subject -subject relation. Pause. I, I'm not sure... If that's true. I know, I thought that was the case when I wrote it, but after reading Paul Tillich, who was also influenced by Kierkegaard, I'm not sure if Kierkegaard believed God was just a subject or if God transcends the object-subject binary. Now, Tillich thinks that's certainly to be the case. He believes God does transcend that binary, and so do I. Uh, so I, re I need to, you know, take that sentence with a grain of salt because I'm not sure if that's true. Back to the essay. This is why old religious scripture discloses truths, not systems, to us subjects. Similarly, this idea could be secularly reappropriated for our ordinary life, which entails being subjective and dealing with other subjects. And unsurprisingly, when people are treated any differently, it infuriates them. For instance, a feminist is right to say the objectification of women is wrong. But ironically, this so-called objectification is a subjective passion of, let's say, male chauvinism. So nonetheless, it's a subject-to-subject -subject relation. We cannot escape subjectivity. Perhaps if I wrote purely about the objective natural sciences, this statement might not wholly apply. That too is questionable since it's us who do the science. In any case, since the unhappy man is about the individual, there's no decoupling or universalizing the human experience from it. And subjectivity is what it ultimately means to be a human being, bar none. Such is why Sartre 
rightly argued against Freud's empirical psychoanalysis that attempts to schematize the human mind via a collection of observations. For Sartre, the psyche is irreducible. Ergo, I am deeply skeptical of psychometrics that attempts to prescribe identities to individuals through its lust for categorizing, for example, gender differences. A cognitive scientist could study the qualia, qualities of the world as perceived and experienced by us, of a human subject experiencing the color red, a footy game, or Tchaikovsky's Piano Concerto No. 1, Opus 23, and analyze the subject's brain waves, heart rate, facial expressions, etc., and convince himself he has an empirical, objective, even ontological understanding of a person. But it'll be a great act of self-deception and scientific malady to presume he precisely knows what an individual or the subject he's studying in particular is experiencing in a way that his findings could replace the actual human being. A psychometrician could categorize human beings into a taxonomy of personality traits such as the Big Five ad infinitum, but never settle on what the actual existence of an individual entails, which is why those traits are an ever-growing enumeration. And of course, no Shakespearean sonnet, no matter how breathtakingly poetic, will truly capture what it means for you and me to fall in love. In essence, every human being is the eternal distinction in reality, because the individual who has become, is to be, and is becoming, will have a life no one or thing ever will. In that sense, the only verity we can be sure of is that we are all eternally lonely in this world. The sine qua non for writing on human experience is the epistemic humility to know that I will invariably fail at tapping into a person's subjective truth and will only be able to delineate my subjectivity, at least that which is effable. Therefore, I write at the risk of being utterly nonsensical. And to be an authentic writer is to accept that writing will never fully encompass existence, specifically that of a soul reader. In that vein, to write well is to know the limits of writing.